Did you know that Exploration Radio is the official podcast partner of IMARC, the International Mining and Resources Conference and Expo, taking place in Melbourne from the 29th to the 31st of October. IMARC is Australia's largest mining event and is attended by more than 7,000 people who are all leaders and key players in the global mining industry. These individuals attend IMARC to network, to experience the latest innovations in mining technology, and to discuss the current challenges and opportunities around mining and exploration. Both Steve and I will be attending IMARC, where we will be recording interviews with key players in the mining industry straight from the expo floor. Are you interested? Why not join us? Register with the code EXPRADIO, that's E-X-P-R-A-D-I-O, at imarcmelbourne.com to claim a 10% discount on your registration fees. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of Exploration Radio. I'm your host, Ahmad. Almost everyone in our industry has an opinion on how big companies should do exploration. We criticize them for being too risk-averse, not moving quickly enough, and probably the most common complaint heard, they're not doing it like we used to in the past. Now, some of these are probably justified, but we also have to remember that we've not seen companies the size of BHP, Rio Tinto, or Vale in our industry before. So trying to compare how these modern large companies work to ones in the past is a fallacy. We're not really comparing apples here. Before we get too judgmental, we probably have to realize that exploration groups have to continuously figure out how they can fit effectively into the corporate structure of these multi-billion dollar companies. And more importantly, how they can continue to provide value to the overall business. So maybe it's time we have an honest conversation on what works and what does not when it comes to running exploration groups in major mining companies. Our guest today is Steve McIntosh, who is a group executive for growth and innovation at Rio Tinto and has been involved in managing exploration activities within Rio Tinto for a few decades now. He joined us live in person from his offices in Brisbane. Exploration Radio is proudly sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. This sponsorship allows us to continue producing the content for AIG members and our wider listeners in Australia and globally. And remember, if you're an AIG member, then you get to claim continued professional development or CPD hours for listening to this episode. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Expression Radio, Steve. It's taken us a while for you and I to be in the same room, but we're finally here. So welcome. Welcome on the show. Thank you very much, Ahmad. It is uh, great, as you say, to, to finally get here. I should also say that you were one of the first people to actually write to us and encourage us to keep going with the podcast. We appreciated it, but we also hold you accountable for the fact that it's become bigger and bigger and it's created more work for us. So thanks a lot for that. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to be held uh, to account on that one. I think you and Steve have done a fantastic job and, you know, I think have told some great stories connected with some wonderful people, dug into some really interesting subjects that clearly are front of mind for a lot of people. So well done. And uh, hopefully this interview lives up to that standard that we've set. So no pressure, Steve. It's all on you. So I wanted to get into why we wanted to have a chat to you. The theme around this episode really is how has mining and exploration as a business changed? Great. We'll look forward to trying to uh, shed some insights or share some insights, I should say, on, on that. So let's start off with a little bit about your background. You've been involved in Sierra Rio Tinto for a number of years. We won't say exactly how many. I think you originally started in CRA or in Rio Tinto? Actually, I didn't. I actually joined Kennecott as it was. Ah, okay. So, you know, by way of background, I'm a uh, Kiwi. Did my undergraduate degree in geology. Don't worry, we won't hold the fact that you're a Kiwi against you on this that, one. So that, okay. That's okay. I noticed your partner in crime is one. So That's uh, right, yeah. But uh, so I did my undergraduate degree in Auckland in geology and did my master's degree in physics and geology and really was meant to go and join the oil and gas uh, industry. But in the early 80s, we obviously had the the gold price spiked. Gold exploration started in New Zealand. So while I was uh, finishing my bachelor's degree, starting my master's degree, I got dragged off to do VAC work. And Ah, gold was it, caught the bug, and therefore never entered the oil and gas. You came to the dark side then, or the bright side, whichever way you want to look at it. Correct. And so while I was working uh, in New Zealand for a a joint venture between a New Zealand and an Australian junior, the Aussie junior had a whole bunch of these ex-Kennecott people that had worked in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. So they said I needed to go and talk to the current Kennecott management about a job 
So yeah, expressed an interest, got offered a ticket to fly across to Sydney for an interview. You're certainly not going to turn something like that down. And basically the rest is history. So in 1987, started with Kennecott working in Papua New Guinea. Okay. Spent a little bit over six years in PNG, originally going to what's called the Tabar Group, which today has the Simberi gold mine. Okay. And then worked at uh, Lahir. That was after the CRA Rio Tinto. No, project. long before. Ah, so, okay. so, so interestingly, the Kennecott, because it had these projects in, yep. in PNG, uh, Lahir, Simberi, sort of our deemed competition was CRA. So we would meet the CRA exploration team, typically, you know, uh, industry meeting, but they were sort of the arch enemy, if you like, the competition, the benchmark yep. against which we were measuring ourselves. And so, you know, it was an interesting relationship. It's like all good things, nice, nice bit of competitive tension. So I joined in 87. Kennecott was a subsidiary of British Petroleum's Minerals Division mm -hmm. at the time. So there's a little bit of complicated history here. Yeah. 1989, RTZ purchased BP Minerals. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, acquired the Kennecott uh, mine in uh, Utah, plus a bunch of assets in the Americas and Lahir and Simberi and PNG. So 89, uh, we become a part of RTZ, but really we continued to explore as competitors until 92. Okay. And uh, end of 92, the feasibility study for Lahir was finished. Mm -hmm. Basically, the um, senior management in London had opined that it's rather crazy having the minority held CRA competing with the wholly owned Kennecott yep. in a couple of parts of the world. So Kennecott went back to work in the Americas. CRA expanded you know, its mandate all the way through Southeast Asia. So sort of, you know, it was a takeover, if you like. And so at that point, I then left PNG and joined RTZ in the UK, okay. looking after project generation in that part of the world. So there's a few companies that were involved in what eventually became the group that you're part of now. Do you care to comment how they differed? Oh, very different cultures. I mean, Kennecott was a very American company at that yep. uh, time, headquartered out of Salt Lake City. Very proud company, even though, you know, it had been ultimately purchased originally by Standard Oil, Standard Oil then taken over by BP. Still very proud history and certainly is one of the strongest technical copper porphyry companies in the world. So we had sort of the residues of that company, very strong sort of higher fire American culture, but, you know, strong technical capabilities sort of in the copper and gold space specifically. Yep. CRA was seen at that time. Uh, and I know you've talked a lot about Western mining, you know, in the context mm -hmm. of these podcasts in Australia, but probably, you know, CRA and Western mining is sort of two technically most preeminent, I would have thought, yep. in a stable of very high technical capability in Australia, 70s, 80s, 90s. But, you know, a different company, a different style, probably uh, much more focused on, I guess, the high science okay. of exploration at the time. Like most companies in Australia, quite strongly models driven, whereas I think Kennecott was very much driven by the data. Okay. Ironically, you know, I would use the phrase, let the rock speak, even though yep. that's a Haddon King line <laughs> that we steal here from the sort of CRA's old days. But there's no doubt Technically, it was seen to be really the benchmark. And yep. through that period, 89, increasingly through to 92, but in particular, 92 up to the dual listing in December 1995, we got closer and closer to the CRA team. And you realize that technically, they really were a powerhouse you know, okay. in, in a number of different areas. And I was straying backwards and forwards between doing geology, basic exploration geology, drilling, sampling, mapping, all the way through to running geophysical programs. Yep. And Kennecott Australia had one part-time geophysicist, and I think CRA in Australia had 50 or 60 at that time. <laughs> so it was a little bit uh, overwhelming to, to go and engage with, the, with Team CRA. It does sound like a pretty good marriage that if you had one group that was a lot more technically driven and another one that was a lot more applied or you know, empirically driven, you should say. It sounds like a pretty good marriage of the two companies coming together. 
Look, it, it was, but I think, you know, in the coming together in late 1995, early 96, it was also a difficult time economically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of the promise out of the dual listing of RTZ and CRA was obviously synergies. Yep. Exploration got to feel a lot of the, uh, the heat uh, from that time. So we had a significant restructuring. And it's probably also worth going back a, a step that in, in 1989 also, for the first time, RTZ appointed a global head of exploration. His name was John Collier. He had come out of CRA and had been longtime senior executive in the company. And John was, you know, one of, one of the most sort of driven people, you know, I've probably still ever met. A really interesting character, was obsessed about discoveries and continuing to grow the company. Thought big, continuously challenged uh, everyone to think outside the square. And so, you know, he shaped a lot of the, the company sort of between 1989 and the time of the dual listing. We then had another former CRA senior executive, uh, David Klingner, mm-hmm. uh, who became the next head of exploration. And I'm guessing David did that about 96, 97, probably in late 96, I think, from memory. And he was the head of exploration until late 2004. Okay. So David oversaw the global restructuring of the exploration group to create the RTX, as we call it, the mm-hmm. return to exploration of today. He's the one that essentially created the strategy that we use today. Okay. A few tweaks, obviously, as time shifts and technologies and other things shift, but it's a very profound document and set of thinking at that time. Painful restructuring, Mm -hmm. but basically set up what we have today. So if you had to go back in the past and redo it, is there something you would focus on changing? Is there something you think... Uh, could have been done better in that? I think like many things, it was a difficult period from the mid-90s to the early 2000s. And like anything with change and restructuring, uh, we just probably didn't go fast enough. Yeah, okay. And I know there's a there's a big human factor in that, and, and I absolutely accept uh, that. But I think what happened was, you know, some parts of the business, their reflections on that period was death by a thousand cuts. Okay. And it's sapping, you know, morale fell in certain parts of the, the organization. And, and therefore, you know, I think it's as a senior leader, if, if you believe that there is a compelling reason for change, the, the best thing you can do for everybody is to, to move at speed and to give people certainty one way or the other. And so that, that was probably would be the biggest part to it. The, the second really was the, the pivot from a what I would describe as a somewhat academic pursuit, if, if I can be you know, uh, brutally honest, yep. to running the exploration group like a business. And that's okay. really what David Klingner brought uh, to to the team, and that's the sort of core of the strategy, uh, mm-hmm. if you like. And and I'm sure you're going to get to a number of uh, other questions as we dig into this. But but that change, and therefore saying you've got to spend this money as if it's your own. Mm-hmm. Um, we we need to be uh, held accountable to you know to our shareholders. The one thing we do know is that you know probably it was expressed a little bit uh, through the John Collier period was. We got busy being busy Mm -hmm. as opposed to busy being successful. And uh, our systems and processes weren't strong enough to sort of contain the the, the organization and to hold it to account. And, And what David brought was a, well, you know what, there's only a finite amount of really good ideas we can actually bring in to an organization like this. We think about the portfolio, very similar to a pharmaceuticals company, big hopper at the front, but tightly stage-gated. Mm-hmm. And we need to define really clear kill criteria for okay. things. And uh, we don't actually need to answer every question. You know, and I know the scientists inside the organization are desperately keen to, and to know why. And there are times uh, where we just have to say, irrespective of understanding the why, this isn't going to make it. Yeah, that's and we right. And we've got a opportunity cost here by trying to spend more time understanding something that probably isn't going to particularly help us. Yep. So we need to move. And there was a lot of pressure put into the system. Make a decision quickly. So we, for a period of time, used a, a rather unfortunate phrase of being uh, mad scientists. And the MAD, the acronym was Minimum Appropriate Data. Okay. So, so what was the minimum amount of information we needed to collect? 
to understand, do we have something of interest to the company or not? Not of interest to the individuals. Yeah, that's right. Which is a trap that, you know, I mean, we are largely technical people. So I think knowing the why or the how I think becomes really important. But that's maybe not what the business wants really out of that. And it's not that we forego trying to answer those questions in the background. But what we'll often do is actually have that question go off and be posed with somebody else. Mm -hmm. So put that back into academic institutions. Go and ask others to opine about these things. But our job is to find the metals and minerals to sustain our company and support the growth of our organization. And the other one was how we engaged strategically through a business language with the organization as a whole. And I think one of the risks for the explorers is, you know, we communicate with ourselves in in a certain language, very technically, but we often use exactly the same language when we go and talk to the business. Yeah, that's right. And they have no idea what the hell we were talking about. Correct. And so the key, one of the other keys was we had to learn the arts of, Mm -hmm. of speaking to the business and business speak and the language of business. And I think we did that very well through the early 2000s and were able to increasingly connect better with the organization. So do you think that exploration having to become more of a business is part of it fitting into larger organizations? I think it's critical. And I think it's how you're able to bring yourself into the strategic space Mm -hmm. of of big companies. You know, how do you communicate to a board? How do you communicate to senior executives? How do you impress upon them the importance of long lead times in a business that's driven to a in-the-shift, hourly, daily, weekly, quarterly, annual sort of drumbeat And I think it's very easy in companies to get caught up in the now, in the short term. And therefore, you need to have a really clear narrative about how you can bring everybody back to that sort of medium and long term strategic uh, thinking and think through the cycle. And, you know, we're not always successful uh, in it, but uh, I think we've positioned our company very well to be able to have those really strategic conversations. Because there is a very strong dichotomy in that large part of mining is about optimization in almost like a linear way, whereas exploration is optimizing in a somewhat random or very exponential way, which if you're a mining company, it's not a, a clear fit in how exploration would fit into that kind of linear optimization method of working. Look, and I would agree, and I think, you know, at times we've struggled, but, you know, again, what I would say is today, I think we're very well positioned. We have a board that is truly thinking about that long term. You know, we've got a company that's sort of very well positioned today, knows where it is, knows where it wants to go, understands the levers that it has to pull to be successful through the cycle. And I think, and is pretty clear about what all parts Retinto needs to play to help in that journey, including exploration. So what we would say is, you know, the teams are probably feeling, the exploration team that is, is probably feeling the love more than it has in quite some time. And uh, that in itself puts pressure into the system, but that's no bad thing. No, no, that's why. Is part of your role the challenge that you have to manage up to the board so they have the right expectations about what you're doing? Or do you think the challenge is also the fact that you have to take the board's vision down to your team as well? So clearly both. And um, yes, I do spend time engaging uh, with the board uh, on issues related to exploration. But, you know, my portfolio also includes uh, resource custodianship as well. So similar to John Van's conversation with you, having those two teams actually within your sort of span of accountability is actually really important because you you get to think about from the ore body out. So we think obviously a lot about greenfields, brownfields. I also, like others, don't get overly caught up in the definitions as long as the work is being done. And our greenfield exploration teams do support in the brownfields of our existing operations. And so I describe that as that work as the outside in view, as opposed to the inside a a reserve or resource model and a block model attempting to go out. Mm -hmm. And you need both views because they are different. And again, you know, I think uh, John Van is certainly with his expertise historically, you know, as a consultant understands that world extraordinarily well. And I would agree with comments that he made in the podcast that you did with John. Mm -hmm. The explorers in that sort of truly greenfields environment need to feel that they have sufficient resources to be successful. 
but also, and again, critically, I think, need to understand that failing fast is critical in exploration, mm-hmm. and we actually need to celebrate it. Do you think we do, though? Uh, I think we do inside the exploration group in Rio Tinto uh, yep. these days, and I think we have done increasingly for the last couple of decades. Okay. Uh, again, going back to that David Klingner period, because actually, as I said earlier, the opportunity cost of sort of sitting on something that actually ultimately is never going to make it is just so great because that means you're not at the next one, which could be that big project, the Eureka moment. That's right, yeah. And I think in exploration, you know, our biggest enemy really is time in a lot of ways. You need to be able to maximize what you can get out at a certain time, not just in the market, but the company cycle, you know, all of these things. Like you said, if you're not optimizing to what the best opportunities you have, then you're going to pay the price at some point. Look, absolutely. And I I think an important uh, aspect of that trust that we have from from our board and senior executives is the fact that we've had a very consistent set of funding now for close to two decades, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, GFC aside, uh, a little bit of an aberration there, but but in reality, a very strong support. And so today we we will spend in the Greenfields environment, you know, a little bit north of 200 million US a Mm -hmm. year. It's a lot of money. And we understand it's a lot of money. But that point about running exploration as if it's a business, you know, when we go back and think about the period sort of 2007 through to 2018, the exploration group uh, spent around about 1.8 billion US uh, through that period and returned about 1.8 billion in divestment income to the group through that period. So again, one of the uh, the nice things you know to be able to, to do and go and say to a board is, and so therefore the things that the exploration group has generated and handed over to the group are in essence free. Mm-hmm. That exploration has washed its face through the cycle. Now, you know, we also understand that we went through a super cycle. We sold them some things for, for some pretty impressive uh, prices. Yep. But, you know, I, I don't think the cycle is dead at all. And I think when we look at supply and demand and discovery rates and things, we know that there will be an incentive coming to find more. And I mean, it so, is inevitable. It, it has to come back. Correct. It, it has to come back. And so, so, again, the confidence that the team has that the money will keep coming as long as they keep generating a solid suite of options, you know, is a good thing. So they they basically they don't need to think about that. What they need to think about is how they get that pipeline full of high quality options and how they mm-hmm. keep moving those options through the pipeline. Yeah. And uh, so that's you know that really is the, the the focus of the team. How they think about technology, how we think about partnering, mm-hmm. how we think about the countries that we are exploring in, how we, you know, therefore sovereign risk, how we think about the commodities of today, but also the commodities of yep. the future. So actually, I'd say that the team has a really privileged position. Yep. So I want to go back to a point which you made, which I think is quite important, is that if you do run exploration as a business, you have to accept that not only will you bring projects in, but you have to divest projects out as well. So are you surprised that other people don't do it this way? I mean, the tendency seems to be in the industry is to have a fire sale of assets at the wrong time of the cycle. In exploration, you know, would it make more sense to run it as a business in that sense where you maximize whatever opportunity you have? Well, look, you know, I really can't talk for others, uh, Ahmed, but this has worked well for us in that healthy tension that we have the, the right commercial capability to do the divestments mm-hmm. embedded in our exploration teams. So often what happens in many companies is that those commercial teams are somewhere else. Yeah. And you, or they're always like a functional level removed or something like that. Some, something like that. So we actually have that commercial capability. And these people in those commercial roles have two distinctly different roles. One is to support the exploration groups to option into and joint venture yep. uh, ground and opportunities. And to therefore, when those uh, projects don't make it through those rigorous stage gates, mm-hmm. to exit for value. And, you know, we try and work very closely with obviously our joint venture partners and others. You know, we want to build a strong uh, relationship, Um, you know, and I know through the 80s and 90s that there's probably some legacy, lots of stories around the behaviors of the majors. You know, I'd like to think that we get this more right than wrong. 
And, you know, one of the things I did uh, before coming in here sort of tot up, you know, many of the, the historic discoveries over the last 30 odd years. And when you go through the list, over 50% of the things that we found didn't quite make it for Rio. And we ended up divesting in lots of different ways. And a couple of those things made companies, were company makers, mm-hmm. um, selling Sipon in Laos to, you know, basically created the Oxiana uh, that yeah, was. Right. And we made a gold discovery in Turkey in the late 90s called Chopla, which made the, you know, the Alisa gold of today and, mm-hmm. you know, the Anatolia province. Uh, going back to Simberi, when it was on in, in the sort of mid to late 80s, mined by St. Barbara Gold today, yep. Lahir, obviously by New- Newcrest uh, today. Yep. And you can go through the list and actually see our company's contribution also to the greater industry has actually been high. And I think it's very often discounted. People will have a very narrow view on one or two issues. But I would say that that we have and continue to play our part in the greater mining ecosystem. That totally makes sense to me because the size of company you guys are and the opportunities that you have to see, you know, I think 50% is actually a pretty good rate. I would have thought it would be less, but it intuitively makes sense that a lot of opportunities wouldn't fit your economic gate. But that doesn't mean that they are bad opportunities. They are the right opportunity for someone else. Look, absolutely. And so we understand, I think, that scaling of the opportunity very well. I know one of the things that you talk about a lot on these podcasts is risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, John Hronsky uh, was very passionate uh, on the subject in the podcast that you did with him. And uh, it was an interesting one because I recall one of the more senior people in the exploration group today, um, we hired in from a, uh, another company. And uh, when he got in and understood exactly what we were doing, he said, oh, my God, you know, people take so much risk. How come? Why are you allowed to do it? And, and by this, I mean technical risk. Yep. And um, we said, well, if you aren't pushing that technical risk reward frontier, you're never going to find anything of interest to rear Tinto. <laughs> if we play it safe in the well-picked-over areas, you, you're down in the second, third tier, the small tiddler yeah, kind of so. things. So we've got to lay some big bets, but we need to make sure that there's some science and deep thinking behind where we make those investments. Yep. So, you know, if we go back and reflect post the, the dual listing, the restructuring of the company, looking, starting to think a little bit about the very early signs, and I'm not saying that we necessarily picked the China boom, but, you know, we, we could see that there was a requirement for certain commodities of a certain scale that would be of interest, obviously, to a, a much bigger company now that uh, we had merged. So, you know, the discovery of Simindu um, mm-hmm. in the late 90s, the discovery, you know, the rediscovery, if you want to call it, of resolution, or the, the really understanding what resolution could be. Yeah, that's right. Um, the true discovery of resolution. The true discovery. And then through to, you know, one of the places uh, we visited last week with my team was in Serbia and looking at this uh, lithium borate discovery there. And those are really interesting kinds of finds because, you know, normally when you find a new mineral, you know, in our world, it's something under a microscope. Uh, You don't normally find many hundreds of millions of tons of a mineral that's never been described before. I mean, finding an ore mineral to that, it's nearly impossible usually. Correct. And so yadarite, you know, is a a really fascinating uh, mineral. The discovery at Yada is, you know, is a great discovery uh, under 400 to 800 meters of cover. So lots of questions about how you found it and yeah. uh, all of those good things. And, you know, but we had a team of experts who knew what they were looking for and what we were looking for was borates. And mm-hmm. we've been very clear on that. Yeah. Uh, and we found borates. It just comes with an awful lot of uh, lithium. Yeah. But it's it's big, you know, and so therefore it, it sort of has that hallmark of something that may ultimately be be of interest to, to Rio Tinto. And we sort of sequence around the world looking, you know, at equivalent sort of scale deposits and opportunities mm-hmm. and also trying to imagine, well, what else could be here? Again, this this issue of being maybe trying not to be as fixated on models as as some people have been. Yep. Robert Friedland uh, isn't interested that Kamoa is discovered on the wrong side of the copper belt, you know, in That's the wrong right. stratigraphy. Yeah. Um, in fact, he and his teams are most excited about being in the wrong place, That's but again, right. being led by the data. 
you know, what could be there versus you're in the wrong stratigraphy. So, you know, we're trying to, to put that sort of tension in with the teams as well every day, mm-hmm. just to rethink those issues around, you know, what do we know? What do we think we know? And what don't we know? Yep. And I would say our geoscience friends maybe are not always fully honest with it, with ourselves around those three categorizations. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, in my head, I always like to take it back to those to those sorts of things. And, mm-hmm. and again, you know, talk about, well, let the rock speak. You know, what's the data say? So I want to go back to a point you made, which is quite an interesting one around risk. So it sounds like in some ways you have to be risk averse as a big company in certain areas, like jurisdictionally and legislatively and things like that. But that allows you the opportunity to take on more technical risk. Would that, would that be a fair way to say that you're, you're trading off that risk profile essentially from one side to another? Look, it's, uh, I think it's always a, a hard one. You know, every single um, deposit, every single business opportunity will have its own very specific characteristics. If we think back to the 80s, the early 80s, and you think about the decision by, you know, BHP, ourselves and the Japanese to enter into Escondida at a time during a period immediately after, uh, you know, essentially a military dictatorship, I think a lot of people in industry probably thought, you know, we're a bit crazy, Mm -hmm. but neither, none of the parties were betting the company. You know, yep. on the opportunity, but they could see the geological opportunity was great, uh, that the business conditions on the ground were improving. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're sat outside the country, maybe that wasn't very obvious to, yep. to, to people. So I think one of the most important things is you need to get into certain places, especially countries and areas that are changing. Yep. And understand that because it's not always the same when you sit outside and you see it maybe uh, in a too sort of rolled up strategic fashion. Yeah, that's right. But you as a company can definitely make a bet on whether you go long or short on which way the country is going to go or regions or things like that. No, correct. And I think also, you know, we, you know, we have the luxury that we can, we can let the explorers um, go out there and test the operating environment in these countries and understand, you know, if we find something perhaps, you know, in the non-OECD or some more difficult countries, we know what it takes to operate there. What we can then do is make a judgment. So could we Tinto? So there's one thing for the explorers to be able to operate in certain places Mm -hmm. safely. Um, But there's another thing to make a large investment and say that the company also would be able to do well here. So I think we can make those sort of judgments and and therefore make a invest, not invest uh, decision. And it gives us sort of a very strong knowledge base to work on and sort of it becomes that advanced guard, if you like, that we can can use And, and we do. I guess the reason why I asked that question is because I I guess to me, it seems like your competitive advantage in the risk space is the fact that you can take on more technical risk than other people. And I think the the criticism often against big companies is that they are risk averse. But I I think that's incorrect because your competitive advantage is in the technical risk, which you probably don't broadcast as often or is not easy to unwind as easily as, you know, the next company going into the Central African Republic and opening up a new mining to me, it always seems like it's a misunderstanding from the market in where your competitive advantage in the risk space actually sits. Uh, no, look, I would agree with I would agree with that, and because you know the the size of the budgets that we have, you know, even within the exploration portfolio, there is a a bell curve of risk. You mm-hmm. know, from things that are relatively low risk, you know, but we then get to probabilities, you know, and yeah. uh, to things that are higher technical risk. And higher sovereign risk and, you know, and a bunch of other ones. But you don't, again, put all of your bets in, on the one corner uh, in, that, in that space. And, um, you know, and I think from all of those, whether it's different commodities, whether it's different geographies, whether it's different geology, the organization learns. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the, one of the most important things is, is that we have an organization every day that goes out, you know, and is hungry for success and is doing stuff. And a lot. And, you know, today we would be drilling, we would have the most projects being drilled probably nearly in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would probably be a little bit surprised by that. You know, they they hear about one or two. But, you know, we have a lot of other uh, activity going on around the world. And it's encouraging. But it has taken 
time to sort of rebuild and restock the the pipeline after yep. after the impacts of the global financial crisis. Yep. And so, you know, my my sense is we're now in a pretty good place. And I think, you know, that post-GFC you know, hiccup that essentially the whole industry went through, I think one of the good things that I think Rio Tinto ended up doing and your group ended up doing is that you didn't shed a lot of people at that time. You tried to retain as many as you could and you did it at the expense of projects. Because I, I think if you lose a group like that, it is almost impossible, nearly impossible to build it together in a short amount of time. So yes, you, you give up the, the part that you don't have a great pipeline, but at least you have the people and you keep the company legacy or the information at least, and you don't lose that. And it was a very conscious decision and a difficult one, but a very conscious one. Uh, and you're, you're spot on. So, you know, we, we basically took the view that the brain's trust uh, within the organization would be almost impossible to reassemble when you think about the, the experience that sits today and sat within the team at the time. So what we did do, as you say, was uh, basically let go opportunities in the pipeline. And we also let go a large part of our execution team. And that definitely showed, you know, so when the sort of world of exploration kicked back up 2011 and 12, and we we got busy again, uh, you know, our safety performance was poor, Mm -hmm. because we'd actually lost the people that know how to go and run projects. Yes, we sort of we had the you know a large part of the brains trust intact, but not the execution arm. So we had to go out and rebuild the execution capability. And and I think as many people have said, you know, here exploration is an absolute team sport, and uh, just having the brightest, smartest people, you know, is insufficient. Uh, you need a well balanced team to take to the field. And again, I think now uh, we're at a point where we're very comfortable with that. Interestingly. We're probably at a point where we have the most diverse team, um, you know, whether it's uh, on the basis of gender or um, ethnicity, but but also on the basis that a lot of the team has come from other companies mm-hmm. and have backgrounds uh, that are not just CRA, RTZ, Canacot. Yep. Uh, and I would say we're, we're the better for it. So we've talked a fair bit about people. So let's uh, go down that thread for a while. You know, exploration by nature are quite a lot of things in the innovation space, which also somewhat sits under your corporate mandate. How difficult is it to manage a more creative side of things in an organization that effectively runs on some level of systems or some level of uh, process? The interesting thing I find is something like the startup team that you're developing. Is that a acknowledgement that there, there has to be a somewhat of a different model to, to allow those type of creative endeavors or innovative endeavors to occur in a large organization? Yeah. So look, I mean, that's a great question. I think the, um, now you let me come to maybe the ventures part of that, that first. So we, we established Retinta Ventures. Um, so when John Sebastian became CEO in 2016, and the aim of that team was to very specifically look at uh, the minerals and metals of the future mm-hmm. um, to, to be a more nimble commercial team. And it was around the concept of building a portfolio of businesses that actually individually may be deemed subscale, mm-hmm. but collectively would uh, have the attributes of, let's say, one of the product groups uh, that, that we have today, you know, so therefore... They need to be in growing industrial sectors, um, you know, the potential to be high margin businesses, long lived, obviously preferable for a company like ours. And so that sort of takes you to um, sort of battery technology, mm-hmm. you know, lithium, obviously. So so the, um, you know, Yada, the deposit in Serbia actually reports through the managing director of that ventures group, oh, okay. uh, which is great because it gives us a owner inside the business that's very passionate about trying to grow that. And and so that team very clearly mandated to go and just scale the world mm-hmm. uh, for those uh, sorts of businesses. And, you know, the exploration group works closely with them to help both provide insights and uh, new concepts and identify opportunities that are with third parties and then also to help vet yeah, okay. materials. So, so, you know, so, so is the ventures team allowed to run slightly differently than, say, the, the, the rest of the organization? So, I mean, at the current time, in terms of agile, nimble, 
uh, all of those attributes. Should you find something and then bring it into into Rio, you mm-hmm. know, you're clearly coming in inside the perimeter of the yep. company, and those things are going to have to obviously align to all of the the, the high level corporate requirements around the way we work and yep. values and behaviours and all of those things. But again, I, I think there's an opportunity to to run a model of you know a business inside a business, so okay. uh, a, a new way uh, of working that maybe is a little bit more focused on organizational structures of the future Mm -hmm. as opposed to the current. I won't say the past, I'll say of the current. And so there's opportunities uh, for us there. And I think that, you know, when we then think about, you know, how you run the exploration group within Rio Tinto, it's not the only group that, you know, we need to think carefully about that, you know, we don't kill off the more innovative parts of that organization through sort of the normal processes that we might drive within, within our big businesses. So that's always about balance, you know, and again, I know you've talked about it on this, uh, on your series, but, you know, Rio Tinto only has one reputation and we can't have the explorers lose that for us. Yep. So, you know, we need to be very clear around the red lines uh, for that group. But beyond that, you talked about technical risk, you know, all of those things. We said, this is, this is your part of the business. You, yep. know, you don't need to conform to other operating practices you know, in your perimeter. And therefore, you know, what are the the metrics that we will use to drive, you know, best uh, performance for you are absolutely not going to be the metrics that work for a big product group or an operating business unit. Is that recognition of the fact that, you know, your organization maturing and how it can handle having an exploration team or a ventures team or, you know, these kind of somewhat disparate business processes which may not fit perfectly in the the main frame they are slightly outside so is that a recognition of the fact that you as an organization have to mature to find other ways of allowing these groups to work yeah it's an interesting one because what we would probably say is that actually the rest of the organization in certain areas is moving more towards the exploration model so if we Uh if we think about you know the profound challenges and opportunities in digitization mm-hmm. of our industry and of digital disruption. And if we use, you know, the construct of today would be what, what is working well in many industries is the formation of these agile teams. Mm-hmm. Where people get a lot of things wrong around agile is that is agile doesn't mean making it up. It actually, <laughs> yeah, actually, actually agile uh, runs a very tight processes but you have this whole concept of failing fast or deliver quick mm-hmm. and um, minimum viable products and uh, scale fast. And That's um, like the lean startup it's, model, it's really. Correct. It's correct. It's very driven to that. And that really are many of the attributes that the exploration group already has. So actually, we've probably been running Agile for nearly two decades and just didn't know what to call it. And so it's an interesting one where we're now needing to shift large parts of our organization to that more agile mindset and change the culture and behaviors in the business, uh, break down the the barriers that exist uh, between the, the siloed technical and functional teams across large companies like ours. And so we're working hard on those on those areas. And it's interesting because my accountability looking after Rio Tinto's growth and innovation organization is we talk about five buckets that I'm in essence accountable for. Uh, so we say find, study, build, optimize, close. Okay. So in the find bucket, you know, they've got their own operating model, which is, as I said, as you could probably describe as agile. In the study organization, you've got a group of people that are expansive thinkers. They basically want to, to take opportunities and go broad. What are all the things we could possibly do with this yep. opportunity and then bring it down to the one thing that we will take into feasibility study? That's right. The more surrealistic option, really. The build group. You know, this is execution par excellence. Yep. Um, this group takes you know, the outputs of the feasibility study and they deliver. And whilst there's some really extraordinarily creative things that they do in that, it's a you know more an army-like uh, kind of kind <laughs> yeah, of kind right. of process, and you, you know very driven, very procedural, which is necessary. 
you know, well, which to, they have to be, which they right? have to be yep. to deliver projects, you know, on time, on yeah. budget. So it's interesting because we get the luxury, therefore, to think about what is core and common to all of these various mm-hmm. teams. You know, the optimized team has our normal technical support types of group. It has our data analytics team. It has all of our IT globally. It has our centers of excellence for surface mining, underground, and, and processing. So it's a really large and a serious technical. Mm -hmm. capability inside those teams. But again, they have a whole range of different mandates from being subject matter experts uh, that support, let's say, major hazard risks in in our organization, all the way through to people that are doing the latest in data science or running our networks globally Mm -hmm. or, or all sorts of other things. And then obviously now, you know, with a uh, a closure organization. And I think what that brings, if we go all the way back to find and study and build, we now absolutely need to be thinking also ultimately about close. Yep. So how do we, you know, how do we do that much more successfully than we have in the in the past? And again, what we do therefore is you move from teams that are working on productivity stuff in the data analytics space who are in the moment, yep. you know, helping to optimize that plant or in the IT group, which is a 24-7 follow the sun organization, you know, their, their network has to be up all the time yep. through to a team thinking at the start about, you know, studying a project and thinking in 40 years time about ultimately closing it. Mm-hmm. So you're scaling from, you know, in the in the moment, in the sort of the minute, the hour, the day, all the way through to something that happens in decades times yep. when we when we ultimately bring something to a close. And I think it's uh, it is actually one of the privileges in the organization to be able to span that and move backwards and forwards through it. And actually, I think for the first time, we have a much more cogent view start to finish. Yeah, okay. Whereas before, you think it would have been somewhat siloed in the way that it was done? And I think inevitably, you know, uh, most most mining houses ran federated models for, for, yeah, you know, right. for most of their history as we did. Um, we really only started experimenting with, um, you, you know, that sort of corporate functions and global, globalizing parts of our business in the early mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're now going through operating model changes to to think to try to bring that networked model matrix organization yep. to really to life. And you know, it's challenging taking organizations that were very driven through the line and trying to sort of break open in certain areas um, and have conversations that sort of cross, especially technical functional areas. And, and you know, I don't have an answer for you on on, on what good looks like. You know, we're we're right there. We're in the midst of that change, but already we're bringing people together that historically never talked and communicated, mm-hmm. and suddenly we're having these profound conversations. Yeah. And, and I think you know, for me, it's probably one of the most exciting times in my thirty-something years with uh, with with the group that we're actually starting to see these conversations take place. I guess I want to take the the lead from your point there about that a lot of this involves dealing with people in some sense. For a long time, mining has been about having domain experts that uh, have the depth of knowledge in certain uh, disciplines. But it seems like we're now moving where you have to have depth of knowledge as well as breadth of knowledge over a few different disciplines so you can then interact with people along the side. Do you see that change coming as part of your organization, the people that you deal with? Yeah, look, and I think there's two there's two parts um, to that. I don't expect to see the demise of the subject matter expert, but I think how they interact with an organization must change. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time and effort on technical excellence, mm-hmm. you know, as we would call it, and and actually. Uh, going back, you know, and, and, and maybe it is um, sort of, you know, back to the days of WMC that have been talked about or CRA, we're putting a lot of investment in people's technical careers. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do is build a, an organizational construct that allows them to be valued for who they are, for the domain expertise, but married up to people that can actually take that expertise and really do something with it okay, yeah. and scale it. Uh, in a way that we we probably have not done or we have not done in many cases in the past. And I think that does take you to those principles of sort of agile teams, you know, multifunctional teams. How do we 
bring the best of or the whole organization together. So in saying that, if the view is that you're going to have to have more, you know, rounded people in the way they interact with different disciplines and not just within their discipline. So there's a training component there that has to come in as well. And how do you train people that are likely going to work in organizations like this in the future? Who do you think has to take responsibility for that? So do you think you have to have skin in the game in this? Or do you think it's something that universities or professional organizations or something else have to take on? Oh, I think it's going to need to be, a, again, a sort of an ecosystem approach. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the company's going to need to describe what is the construct that we, that we expect people to work in, what are the behaviors that, that we expect mm-hmm. to, to see. We know cultural change is required here, and we know that that's actually one of the most profoundly difficult things to do in big organizations is to shift culture. Yep. So I think, you know, it's, you know, we're on a journey. I certainly don't have all of the answers. But what I can say is that where we are already bringing routinely multidisciplinary teams, truly multidisciplinary teams together, we're getting the best results by far with the the richest insights and in some cases, aha moments that we didn't expect to to necessarily get. And, And when I say, you know, really broad teams you know these are teams where we would have individuals that people would never have expected to be in the room with them and therein lies i think the 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 value and so just bit by bit um you know we're starting to see that i think a technical organization can conceptualize the importance of data and data analytics. Mm-hmm. So I think that one's an easy one, but perhaps some of the softer issues traditionally are, are the ones where actually we're getting some of the more profound thinking coming through. Yeah, and I think innovation is often thought of as technology, but you could be innovative in how you retain people, you train people, you know, how you allow people to interact in an organization. You know, there are ways that you could innovate as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be, well, we're just going to take the coolest piece of technology that we have and try to use it. And look, I think that's absolutely right, Ahmad. It actually is, is probably least about technology, if we're really, really true. And it's about, you know, the big sort of profound changes to, you know, operating models, the way that that we work, the way that we frame the problem. Uh, throwing tech at, at things is, uh, is you know, is okay. But, you know, what is the business problem you're trying to solve? Yep. And I think one of the most important things is, you know, what is the question we're truly trying to answer? Yep. And, you know, making sure we've We've really defined the problem statement as well as we can before we go to market for the solution. I guess one of the things that often comes up is that when you work in big organizations, there is this asymmetry in the risk you're allowed to take and the reward that you get for it. Do you think that somewhat has to change where if you allow people to be a little bit more, uh, you know, walk off the, the beaten path and try different things? Is there have to be a recognition that you have to change that risk-reward thing as well? Absolutely. And, um, you, you know, I think we understand that we need to move this. And, and again, you know, we've sort of used the, the construct of sort of agile processes and the concept of fail fast. You know, big organizations, because of sort of their reductionist approach to risk, get to the point where failure is not an option. And, and therefore, you know, we spend an awful lot of time on the reductionist side to try and uh, you know, get to the sort of the, the zero risk moment. And often they don't exist, you know, so I think it's uh, a little bit of a fallacy. And so what we're trying to do is walk back to, you know, well, what is actually the best thing? What's the, the best option ahead of us, even if it carries, you know, some risk? But what we need to do is describe it, be very clear what that is and, and work out, you know, how can we test some of the opportunities in front of us in a way that you're not going to break the business. Yep. So I think trying to unpack the problem a little bit more, um, rethink, again, that, that problem statement. And again, you know, in the larger organizations, that expressed itself during the China-led boom where we sort of ended up with a range of mega projects, mm-hmm. huge amounts of work done, you know, on those projects, uh, you know, with a view to, to reduce risk. But the issue is because you went big, you actually were compounding risk. And, and so I Sorry, think, again, yeah. what we're now thinking about is right-sizing, you know, all of the future business opportunities so that actually in getting its size and scale right up front, you may forego some value 
Um, but that value may have been illusory because mm-hmm. it, ca- it actually came with even more risk because of the scale at which you were trying to deploy. That's so, right. So bring it back to things that are right-sized. You then put you know, the right incentives in to try and deliver that you know, as efficiently as you possibly can, and no matter what it is, whether it's a new project or whether it's you know, a, a, an IT project or, or others. Um, and I think you know, trying to rethink that. But again, we've got a lot of artifacts you know, in our business that, that sort of push us back towards that risk reductionist piece. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we need to continue to work to, to make sure we get the balance right. You, yeah. you, you know, we're not going to just suddenly switch all of those processes off uh, and go free for all. And neither should you, because I think the fallacies in this space is people go, well, we need to change, so we're going to change tomorrow. And I don't think that quite works. You can't just throw everything else that you've been doing in the past or the present out and go, well, now tomorrow we're going to do something completely different. You you can't sink the company that way. There has to be this kind of tension between what do you do new and how long do you maintain the current and the old? And, and then there's always that tension, I think. And I think also one of the, the opportunities that sits uh, in front of us is new projects. So, you know, new discoveries. So as you go through the evaluation stages of, of a new discovery, well, yeah. you know, you have an opportunity to do something a little bit different to address some of those issues. So how can we go a little bit faster but make sure that in in going faster, we're not actually setting ourselves up for a fail by missing certain things. Yep. And you know, in that, you know, giving people permission to take on you know more more risk without necessarily all of the checks and balances that we would normally have. Uh, and I say that always with the caveats that you know safety and behaviours and those sorts of things. We don't we don't leave yeah, those at the door. They're non-negotiables. Yeah. I think that's a very valid point. I mean, I think the point you've made, which I quite like, is that it's not so much the end product that you want to get to you have to have some level of being okay to iterate along the process and know what works what doesn't and then and then see how you go people always think about it as end products they think what we are now is not good but where we want to be is in the future but they miss the 25 steps it could be five steps could be 25 could be 50 steps in between you're gonna have to go through those steps to get there you can't just go a to B without doing anything. And, and I think the good news is, you know, it's exciting because what we also can think about, you know, at the end of last year, we announced our Kadadri, the investment in the Kadadri mine in the Pilbara is, you know, the intelligent mine, which mm-hmm. is sort of the next logical steps around automation uh, and thinking about the, the mine of the future. And therefore, the next thing that follows will be further again down that path about yeah. actually rethinking completely aspects of our of the value chain, how we actually construct and operate minds of the future, um, bring not only the latest technology, but also, you know, bring the latest thinking about, you know, people mm-hmm. into this and uh, uh, how you can really create a different culture. Uh, yep. inside these these new organizations that you construct and i think that's really one of the most uh, exciting things being in this in this mm-hmm. group as i said because of you know we span all of those component pieces and are able to help bring yeah all that you get together. to play with the full value chain now so you can take solutions from the end i mean you know maybe the best way is that the closure team dictates how you say do studies so rather than leaving it at the end to solve a problem you solve it right up front i mean i think that would be a good outcome if you did it that way Absolutely. So we end our interview with two questions. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? It could be an idea, a concept, a behavior, anything that you think we need to jettison out of the industry. So look, I think the uh, I'd probably go for the behavior piece. And for too long in my career, we saw you know the really siloed thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in these businesses, and um, you know, I think we lose. We've lost so much in that as, as an industry. So I think you know, again, as I said, when we now look at these multidisciplinary teams, and everyone is in the room, they have a role to play, and so we have you know the full respect of all of the technical and functional disciplines uh, in those rooms. What we get out of it is so much better than what we get individually. And so I think one of the behaviors of this organization is, uh, of this industry, I should say, is really to embrace that networked model, to bring everyone on this journey and get all of the voices, in particular the quiet voices, in the room and make sure we hear 
from them, not just the alpha males, you know, uh, as it was historically, yeah. uh, unfortunately. And I think if we can if we can turn that, because what that then means is is ultimately we become a, an industry that will attract, engage, and attract, you know, a broad and diverse base of people to join us, which will ultimately help in in if you like the industry survival. Because yeah, we, we need we need to have a different face to the public, to our stakeholders than we do today. Yeah, and I think as an industry, I mean, it would be a healthy sign if we accepted that maybe a lot of metallurgical problems that we're currently having could be solved by someone that's not a metallurgist. And, you know, maybe they might have solutions. It could be a data scientist. It could be anyone in that space that could do it. And I think it would be a really healthy sign if we get to a point as an industry where we look for the right solution, not necessarily for the person that has the job title that that will be able to solve that problem. Look, absolutely. And and so, you know, for me, you know, I describe it as, you know, work the matrix as opposed to kill the matrix. And, uh, and you know, let's really reframe how we do this and really make sure that, um, you know, it's not just lip service, that we really want to be in an inclusive and diverse you mm-hmm. know, industry as we move forward. So conversely, and last question, what is something that you think we should maintain in mining at all costs? Again, can be an idea, a behavior, a concept, anything. Well, for me, I think that's always been uh, a really simple one. And I think it's a sense of adventure and pioneering. Mm-hmm. I think we spent a lot of time actually talking ourselves down uh, as an industry, not, notwithstanding what I just said. And yet when we look at some of the things that this industry does and the places that it does it, because we always have to take people and technology to where Mother Nature has hosted the minerals and metals, mm-hmm. in that there is just some amazing things that we do as an industry. And we are absolute pioneers. We have been for centuries. Mm-hmm. We need to be to continue to, you know, to supply the minerals and metals that are essential to human progress. And, and it's a fantastic industry. There's no time in my 32 years with this group that I've regretted being in this uh, in this industry, and I think yeah. we really want to get people to buy back into that and really become advocates for what what we do. And we know we've got some profound issues ahead of us, whether it's around you know energy efficiency or climate change or environmental mm-hmm. issues. We we can solve these. We've been solving these sorts of issues and we can solve them in, in into the future and be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So I think I think just that really making sure that people um, you know grasp the mantle and and really do promote our industry I think is a really key one. I think that's a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Steve. This is great. Ahmad, it's been my pleasure. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced and edited by Ahmad. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com support. Until next time, Let's keep exploring.